何もせずに帰るそうだ何もせずに帰ろう Scares us and what saves us. This is the fear of God. Hello and welcome to not just another episode, not just another anniversary year, but a whole new series starting right now. On the Fear of God podcast. Speaking to you right now is maybe your favorite host, Nathan Rouse. Uh, typically with me is my favorite host, Reed Lackey. But he was going to be here, but he insisted on eating breakfast before he joined, which is a little weird because we typically record at about, you know, right now it's 11 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. But hey, I I love breakfast and could eat it right on the clock. So I'm not going to not gonna diss a guy for wanting some breakfast before he joins the program. So while we wait for him to finish that off, um, yes, you are listening to The Fear of God. Here at The Fear of God, we explore the holy and the horrific at the intersection of faith and fear, exploring what scares us in order to find out what saves us. If you are new to the show, welcome. If you have been here low these three years, welcome back. Um, we would love it if you have not. Um, to if you would be willing to go to iTunes, leave us a rating, leave us a review, subscribe. More than that, you know, honestly, those are awesome. They really are. They're fun. Uh, we enjoy receiving and reading those. Um, but if you'd be open to sharing what we're doing here uh, in some format or fashion on your various social media platforms, that would be amazing as well. I'm really excited about what we got. Hey, hey, Reed, you're back, buddy. You're back. You got a little. You good? You full? Uh, you... yes, yes. Yeah, you okay? Uh, I don't know. That was fe- a heavy. That was a heavy sigh. Been feeling, been feeling a little weird, man. I don't know why you Uh-oh. ask so many questions. You know, I just, uh, ah. you know, why, why you gotta, why you gotta interrogate me so much? Why you gotta, why you gotta constantly, you know, you jerk. Third uh, anniversary, uh, off with a bang. 
I'm not feeling. <laughs> you know what's funny is I was I, so in the moment, what? real time. In the moment, yeah. I was thinking, oh, I could commit to being like you know the Hyojin sort of possessed thing, and I was like, I ain't going to where some of her language goes. I ain't doing that. <laughs> it's like I can't, yeah. I can't do that. So it's like I I, I lost commitment on the bit. It's like I started, that's okay. <laughs> that's okay. I started to do well, it. Well, it's then, fu- it's funny because I knew read fashion. I just pulled back from it. Like I can't. I yeah. can't do that. I can't do that. You gotta you gotta push past that. Read push. You know what? What is it? Um, you know, comfort's not worth dying for. Like, oh, you know, sure, yes, you got to yes. push past. Read that was an endless quote. Yes, it was. Um, here we are, dude. Yes. It is. We are. We are formally, as you reminded us last week, formally in our third anniversary, mm. which is exciting. We have we have reached a milestone. Um, I can't. I don't know. I can't believe it. It's so hard to believe that, like week on week, uh, with just a couple of little exceptions here and there, uh, we have delivered a new episode, a new conversation about films, books, uh, TV series. Like it's just, man, it's it's crazy to think that three years are in the can, and to think about how many more might be ahead of us. It's just, I, it's, I love it. I love it. I do too, brother. Yeah, and and I don't know that I even called this out last week when we referenced these anniversaries, but. I think I speak for you as well and feel free to jump in. Like I couldn't be more grateful for the fun, but thoughtful community. That's kind of risen up around the show. It's just really great to see, you know, even I don't even feel like I'm as active as I want to be, but seeing folks engaging with each other who of course outside the fear of God would not have known each other. And yeah, you know, us, you know, posting trailers and sort of watch a for each other of readings and whatnot. It's like, it's just a really, really fun sort of experience and community that we get to engage in. And that, um, you know, we may be holding the microphones, but, um, we take as much pleasure from engaging with you guys as hopefully y'all do from listening to the show. So very grateful, uh, for all of that. Agreed. We, we got a lot to get to Riri. This is a, this is a a big episode. It's pretty daunting. Um, (laughs) it is, you were feeling a little under the weather there. I thought about asking you then, but I'll instead be like, what you watching? What you mm-hmm. What are you listening to? Ooh. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> it, didn't, it didn't stop, but all of a sudden there was these like haunted mansion gurus like oh, oh, oh. <laughs> I, was, I was pulling the caretaker and they're like, Oh my lantern's starting to shake. Okay, so um <laughs> <laughs> so, um, okay, so I know we took a break from it last week, but I can't stop reading. I can't stop reading. You can't stop reading. No, no, good no, for, no. I'm proud of you. Okay, I'm proud. So, did you did you did you uh, see continuity uh, expert Steve Beckley's fun little shade he threw at you? I did. I did. It was <laughs> good. kudos kudos to you, Steve. <laughs> Oh, oh, that was gosh. amazing. That was amazing. That was, that was I thought it was fun. brilliant, Steve. It, yes. Reed, it, it, Reed's, Reed's a tough critic. Yeah. <laughs> it was pretty awesome. It was pretty great. Um, <laughs> okay, so, um, yes, I re- I just finished a, a pretty fun little book, um, very informative. Um, it kind of reads in many ways like an almost like a, a quasi-encyclopedia uh, just in terms of its formatting and structure, but um, it's a book called Paperbacks from Hell, it is uh, yes. It is the uh, subtitled "The Twisted History of the Horror Novels of the '70s and '80s." So this is a book about the trend that happened in the publishing world, where really horror novels, uh, 
rarely saw the bestseller list, the major uh, fictional bestseller list. Prior to uh, the 70s, I think the first horror novel that had hit the bestseller list was, was a, like one random book from the 50s, and, and so it was just rarely ever there. But in the 70s, three books hit the bestseller list at the same time, not only being a bestseller, but like became a cultural phenomenon. One was a, a, a somewhat lesser-known book now by Thomas Tryon called The Other, then there was Ira Levin's Rosemary's Baby, and um, <laughs> so uh, and then of course a uh, book I love dearly, William Peter Blatty's The Exorcist. Those three books hit the bestseller list, and they launched a publishing phenomena where um, there were a lot of novels that were direct to paperback, and they were pulpy, and they were uh, they were really sort of direct horror novels with monsters and mutants and mad scientists and you had um oh my you know, it was a government exper- <laughs> yes and uh <laughs> government uh conspiracies and you had uh like you know opening the gates of hell and all these kind of monsters and weird creatures and everything and and so there was lots and lots of these paperback novels, these paperback pulp novels that made their way to the bestseller list um well not necessarily the bestseller list but they just became a publishing phenomenon and that lasted through kind of the late 70s and early 80s until uh, a little novel hit the stands uh, called The Silence of the Lambs by Thomas mm. Harris. And when that happened, yeah. And when that happened, it, this, this, is so, this was so fascinating to me. Uh, this is all coming from that, from that book. When that happened, when Silence of the Lambs hit, then horror kind of became out of fashion and got replaced with the word thriller. And there was a large boom of like, um, like serial killer storylines, and uh, it gave way. You know, its sort of procedural uh, tone uh, gave way to sort of what we see manifested now in television with like the CSIs and the NCISs and all this other sort of stuff. Like a lot of it can be rooted back to the popularity and success of the Silence of the Lambs, which kind of accidentally killed the mass market pulp horror boom of the 70s and 80s. And this this book, Paperbacks from Hell, um, charts that entire sort of progression and all the different categories of different books. Uh, he references somewhere in the neighborhood of like 250 different books um, that uh, you know are in different categories. It's a very fun book to kind of browse through. Either you can, you can go through it linearly um, or you can take it kind of section by section to the different elements of, uh, of horror novels from that time period. He's got recommendations, tons of appendices. It's a great book. I really enjoy it. If you're interested in horror fiction and if you happen to have grown up in the 80s and came across some of those pulp novels in your day, um, I think you would really, really enjoy this unpacking of that history um, again, it's called Paperbacks from Hell. The author's name is Grady Hendrix, uh, contrib- contribution by Will Erickson. Uh, yes, I highly recommend it. It's a fun book. Uh, might give you some opportunities or some options to uh, go explore further, if you will. So that's what I've been reading. I dig it. I'm proud of you. Now, thank you. You may have said you may have said this, but there was a lot you just said. Was this a book that you um, were tipped off to, or that you just found by browsing? Found it by browsing. Uh, and obviously with a title like that, you get sort of intrigued That's, and I feel like so. you just stumbled on the name of your memoir. Oh yeah. Found it by browsing. 
<laughs> I used to love the I days. Yep. I used to love the days when I could go to the library and uh, still do it every once in a while, but much more rare these days where I could just go to the library and browse the new titles and just go home with random things. And it was, it was fun. It was great. No, I, I'm yeah. serious. It's, it's your memoir. It's about a life lived. I yes. found it by browsing. How did you discover browsing. purpose in life? I found it by browsing. Found it by browsing. Browsing yeah. and... Yeah. Here's here's the life here's the well, life I got. Well, I sure didn't what? get my purpose in life by having it recommended to me. That's for sure. It's <laughs> 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 like sort of delineating. Yeah. So. yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, all right. Well, um, would you be interested in purpose and destiny? <laughs> <laughs> Watch it again. Would you like so you know bathroom reading? Would you like purpose driven life or found it by browsing? You know, it's like. All right. Okay. Sorry, Rick Warren. Um, <laughs> so my watches, I've got two little brief ones because I'm going to hold off on packing one for a few minutes. But uh, the first one is I also read a book, finished a book recently. Too. Look I'm, at us, Reed. I'm amazed. It's it's stunning. I can't tell if you're like being a jerk. I'm not being a jerk. Like no, saying, I'm like, look at us reading books. No, I just, I mean, I'm being slightly tongue in cheek, but no, I'm like, we're reading oh, okay. again. All right. We are. Look at yeah. there. Reading again. <laughs> <laughs> reading again. Again. <laughs> Ain't it good to be reading again? Again. God. Jeez Louise. All right. So uh, the book I read is by the author Brad Jerzak, whom I just referenced two weeks ago uh, mm, on Annihilation. Yeah. I've referenced previously multiple times. I read his book, Her Gates Will Never Be Shut. I read his book, A More Christ-Like God. Um, he just released two books, um, one of which I have gotten through. The other one I have not started yet. But I actually did start it, but haven't gotten far. Um, mm. The one I finished uh, is called In, I-N, mm. with the subtitle Incarnation and Inclusion. Um, and yeah, yeah, ooh, provocative. Mm. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. I, I will. So it's a shorter book. Um, so you know, I'm not that academic, <laughs> but hey, we're reading you... again. We're reading pamphlets. <laughs> oh, <laughs> little brochure. Um, <laughs> thanks, Brad. Um, <laughs> you may listen to this at some point, but uh. <laughs> Uh, Brad Jerzak is a Canadian. We do love our Canadians at the we, fear of God. We do. Um, theologian, pastor, author. I don't know. When I discovered his work, it felt like a breath of fresh air to mm. what had become a staid and sour version of, of Christianity. And as the title of this book suggests, um, it does hit on some things that I'm interested in. And... I'll, 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 I'll save the unpacking for a moment. So that's, so I read that book and then the listening to also relatively brief. Um, I referenced multiple times the, why is this happening podcast with Chris Hayes? Yeah. I recommended this to you a couple of weeks ago, Reed, but I just recently listened to his episode featuring Reverend William J. Barber, um, or uh, mm-hmm. Reverend, Reverend Dr. William J. Barber. Right. Um, right. and, and just, you know, if you are, a person who is a little bit like me and, and rather discouraged by the state of uh, our country, if you will. Um, it, it's easy to feel real despondent and despair a bit. And it was just really great to listen to Reverend Barber on this episode. He's one, he's just super down to earth. I don't know how much of his stuff you've read or listened to, but I um, mean, super down to earth, but 
for a person with his story is still incredibly it, it gave me a lot of hope to yeah, hear him speak yeah. and to and to really um you know kind of directly name and address some of the issues that are that are at work in our mm. country so yeah uh in by brad jerzak and the with pod why is this happening podcast uh, particularly featuring reverend barber is what i have been watching mm-hmm. what i'm reading <laughs> what i'm listening to <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I don't know. I'm in a funny mood tonight, Reed. Hey, well, it's a heavy film, so funny, funny's good. (laughs) It's all, it's all heavy, but it's it's all, it's all heavy. You ain't heavy. You my brother. Aww. Aww. I like that song. Yeah, Um, Clay Clay Cross. (laughs) Wow. Wow. Oh my gosh. CCM. Oh my gosh. Um. So Nathan. We are not only in a new episode and in a new year with the uh, the dawning of our what will presumably be our fourth anniversary, the, you know, our fourth year of podcasting, but we are now we are now starting a brand new series. Do you want to do you want to talk a little bit about this new exciting, daunting, intimidating <sighs> venture that we're that we're branching out into? It is all of those things, my friend. Um, I I do. I'm I'm sort of trepidatious, if I'm honest. Okay. But sure. Um, you know what? I'm here with you. It's just you and me talking. It's just you. Yeah. And me. I just want to mess up together. Yeah. Um, ah, yeah. And we might do that. <laughs> um, <laughs> who knows? Because you know, to some, this might be the moment where the fear of God jumps the shark and finally gets political. But finally, um, <laughs> finally, right, right. At least in a formal capacity. <laughs> in a formal capacity. Up till now, it's just been more, you know, circumstantial. Um, wow. We are beginning a series today, guys, called Guys and Gals, um, called Speaking in Tongues. And, you know, Reed and I have been discussing Off-Pod for a couple months. Well, the, the, the two, two entwining thoughts here. One is just the name Speaking in Tongues that I'm pretty sure, Reed, that I'll give you credit you had developed a little while back. Um, Thank you. That fi- that finally hit pay dirt with this concept we're executing on today, beginning today. So uh, I think I won't speak for you, but I think at least largely I'll, I I speak for you philosophically that the things that are happening at the United States and Mexico border are very distressing and very mm-hmm. disheartening mm-hmm. and very dis- discomforting. Um, and there mm-hmm. are many ways. There are many ways where. It is very challenging in the endless of our day to day to know how and what to do. Yeah. About that. Yeah. Um, if and, and, and yeah. And so an exciting aspect to speaking in tongues is if you haven't checked the T public fear of God landing page in a while, uh, we kind of low key. Uh, released a couple of new designs. Oh yeah! And so those are really fun, aren't they? Shout out Jacob Hunt. <laughs> Man, they're great. Jacob Hunt, you now, uh, ladies and gentlemen, can own your very own "That Ain't Right" Fear of God T-shirt. That's so awesome, uh, isn't it? <laughs> it's so it. fun. My uh, wife well, just bought a, a shirt called that says on it, "Y'all need Jesus," and I want to wear my "That Ain't Right" T-shirt <laughs> and her. <laughs> <laughs> where her y'all need Jesus. <laughs> yeah, there's some weird messaging happening there. Oh, I don't so totally great. know how to so parse great. that. Um, although it is funny as a little asterisk. Just recently, I was 
my eight-year-old and I had some kind of daily errand adventures we were doing. And I introduced her to the concept of that ain't right. Oh, like, boy. You know, oh, it's hot outside. That's This is when you say that ain't right. So now she will occasionally drop a that ain't right on me. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so there are a couple of new designs. The short of it is for the entirety of the series, speaking in tongues, and, and we'll unpack some of this in a second. When you purchase a piece of Fear of God merchandise, a portion of those proceeds sold during that are going to go to the Florence Project. Uh, Reed and I deliberated over this a little bit and found some organizations that we thought well represented what we were after. Um, and the Florence Project is just one of those of many. But the Florence Project specifically provides free legal and social services to detained men, women, and children under threat of deportation. And this is this is not just timely, uh, but particularly timely to this recording because it was just announced today that detained families can now be held indefinitely um so that is a a a national sin that we'll have to reckon with for years to come but so the notion of tackling this idea as a sub mm, sub substream to a, a conversation series um speaking in tongues we really wanted to and what we are doing is tackling foreign language films, not just not just international films, not right, just non-United right. States-based productions, but specifically foreign language films. And how I want to set this up a little bit, and then I promise I'll quit talking, but it was unintentional, much like reading Universal Christ and suddenly having conversations in Hereditary and Annihilation relevant to it in this book, In, and, and I'll set this up in, as just perhaps read if I can as a thesis for this whole idea. I want to read briefly two little notes from it. Uh, In the book, Jerzak defines inclusion. He's very intentional about defining what that means. And I'm going to read this definition and then I'm going to read another little section. So Jerzak defines this this way. He says, Trinitarian inclusion is not necessarily universalism which is a word people use like a bludgeon. Though some Trinitarians are universalists, I am not, he says. But my inclusivism means that I hope, pray, and preach that all will ultimately see and respond to the revelation of Christ in them as they discover they have already been forgiven and reconciled to God through the work of Christ. Second, for me, our inclusion into the life of the Trinity must also become manifest through the full and practical inclusion of diverse people at Christ's open table. Who is welcome? Who belongs? Who is included? All who were in Adam. All for whom Christ came. All whom Christ has invited. All for whom Christ has died. A table too small for the least and the lost is not the table of the Lord. Mm. So that's that's a definition of inclusion, how it's used in this book. What sparked specifically for me speaking in tongues and read, I apologize, you didn't know I was going to do all this because we got a lot to get to. But oh, it's okay. in one section that uh, is in this book, Jerzak interviews a couple named Jamie and Donna Winship who operate an organization directly reaching out to Muslims. It's not in America. It's not in the U.S. I just have a screenshot, so I can't go back and forth to know exactly where it's at. But it's in one of the Middle Eastern countries. And in interviewing uh, 
So, so what I'm about to read is the response of a question Jerzak asked. Okay. Um, taken slightly out of context, but it's going to make sense in a second. So, this gentleman, Jamie Winship, says, We're often told or raised to think that my identity or my group is the best right group. And so, when we meet another person from another background or another group, the message to them is if you want to live in the kingdom, you have to be like me. You have to leave your group and come into my group in order to come into the kingdom. That message does one thing in the world. It produces conflict mm. and is not the straight way that Jesus talks about. And this particularly is what I really wanted to hone in on. Here is the reality of what Jesus is saying. You can be who you are and walk in your own identity through Jesus straight into the kingdom. That is the amazing thing. And although there is only one way to the Father through Jesus, Jesus is on every road. Mm. And I just, for me personally, that phrasing, Jesus is on every road, yeah. uh, is, an, yeah. is an important and significant benchmark as we sort of engage these notions from, we're going to be talking about films from all over the world. Um, yeah. You know, we're going to, we are going to be donating portions of what you purchase in terms of merchandise to the Florence project. Yeah. Uh, because, yeah. because Jesus is on every road and Amen. we are not allowed to take people from the road. <laughs> as it right. Were. Right. So anyway, I, I hope that was an, a permissible way to springboard us into this brand new series that is, yes, intimidating and daunting. Certainly. Can I, can I, uh, we, have a ton, we have a ton to get to. I have two things. Uh, maybe we'll bring us up a little bit more into the shallows just because they, <clears throat> they <laughs> but, but it's what, it's what I think about whenever I hear a phrase like Jesus is on every road or do you remember the Doug Tenapple uh, graphic novel mm -hmm. Creature mm -hmm. Tech? Mm-hmm. Do you remember that? Yeah. Do you remember that moment? There's a moment where, because the premise of it is that uh, it's it's a very inventive kind of fantastical book. Uh, it's a graphic novel, but a character comes in contact with a parasitic alien being, and uh, there is a moment where this character has a vision of this parasitic alien's home planet, and when he's looking at it, everybody on this you know, foreign alien planet is, you know, of the type of this parasitic alien. They look like it and everything. And he looks up and it's the way that I say it, it's going to sound a little silly, but in the context of the book and when it appears, it's, yeah. I think it's, I think it's pretty profound and, and pretty affecting. Uh, he looks up and he sees an image of an alien, uh, this, the alien form uh, crucified and on like a top of a hill and everything. Mm -hmm. And the main character looks and says, uh, I forget what his what his uh, prefix statement is, but he says, you know, something like, oh, my God, he says, you're here, too. And mm. it was just mm. I mean, like and, and it really affected me. There's a similar moment in William Peter Blatty's uh, film and novel. Uh, well, the novel is called uh, something Killer Kane, Twinkle Twinkle Killer Kane, I think. But the but the movie is called The Ninth Configuration. And there's an image in this movie that I love, 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 love. And it's an image of the uh, famous uh, astronaut uh, planting an American flag on the moon. Mm -hmm. And uh, the, so the astronaut plants an American flag on the moon. But when the astronaut has done that and kind of claimed it, he turns around. And when he turns around, right behind him 
is a cross. And I just, oh, wow. I, I, it's powerful. There's not a ton of commentary in the context of the film because the film's very metaphorical as it, as it was. But, um, but I love, love, love that image of like somebody coming and saying like, okay, I'm staking my claim here and turn around and find like, oh, you're, you're here too. Like you're already here. So that's, uh, I just wanted to say like, th- those are the kind of things that I think about when I hear statements like Jesus is on every road and, and, uh, just the, the preeminence of, of that that presence and how much well, how much I believe that and so yeah relevant too but I'm going to drag us even deep, even more into the shallows here um, <laughs> although I appreciate your offering there <laughs> you made me think of this talking about the creature tech which yes I knew ex- when you brought that up I was like yeah 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 Jesus Jesus on every road Jesus on every planet Jesus on every planetary body um, <laughs> recently I I work in a sales environment and so it isn't an environment just sort of prone to depth if you will oh okay um you know conversationally it's it's often speaking of shallows can can be quite that and i was running late for a a a senior staff meeting recently which sounds even more professional than it really is based on where (laughs) the story is about to go and most of the guys i work with know although i i am Mr. Progressive or whatever on the podcast verbally, but you know, in, in general life, like if you ask me questions, I'll answer them, but I'm r- rarely going to offer it unless I think I'm principally being, uh, unless something ethically is afoot, right? Uh, yeah, or, right, or right. wrong. So I walk into the senior staff meeting a little late and clearly business is being talked about. I'm just kidding. Business is not being talked about. And <laughs> the boss, he's, it's like, oh, Nathan's here. Let me, hey, let me ask you a question. I was like, uh, like, uh, li- like literally I walked in and I'm, I am not making this up. These were the questions. Um, and to set the stage a little bit, one of my good friends who I referenced on the, the coworker I referenced who says, I haven't met Christians like you, that person, there's about oh, four episodes ago. Right, right, anyway, right, right. Anyway, so he's sitting in there and I sit down next to him and the boss is like, let me ask you a question. Like, okay. Yeah. I'm just walking through the door here. Uh, he's like, do you think aliens are real? <laughs> oh my yeah, gosh. Really. And I was like, okay, here's where we're at. Yeah, just happy Monday morning. <laughs> and I said, you know, uh, I think it's possible. I don't know. Maybe. And then his follow-up question was, well, do you think the existence of aliens would make the Bible not true? Oh my gosh. And, and I said, no, not at all. And you could tell it was just like brain melting that I responded that way. <laughs> and my buddy that I'm referencing from my former reference on the podcast, he, you could tell he was like, well, Nathan's not like the other Christian people. You know, it's like, <laughs> it was like they were trying to get this point proven. And I was the bad test case to ask. You know, it's like, no, no, no. Extraterrestrials means the Bible's fake. You know, oh like my whatever. gosh. Wow. Idea. Yeah, so now that we are back. At the beach, we are no longer in the depths whatsoever. True. You know, true. Here, now, now we. Can, are you ready? Are Let's you ready? do it. Let's do it. Okay, ladies and gentlemen. Yes. You've missed it. We know you have. <laughs> it's time once again for hashtag TV guideposts. This time, with a, an accompanying hashtag Netflix and chills, because we are going into the German series Dark. We're going to go a little dark, but don't worry. We'll bring you back up to the light soon enough. So why don't we dive into the first two episodes of the Netflix original series, Dark. 
Dude. I'm just gonna let dark like sort of linger. It's yeah. funny. It's funny because dark. the music the, the music's all light and fluffy and airy and everything, but I feel like it should just take this sort of ominous tone towards the I don't know. Sure. I, I don't think that's gonna happen. But anyway, so um <laughs> this is this is unique for us. This is different. Yes. Most this is exciting. Of t- most of the time when we engage with material, I am on my second or sometimes third uh, or multiple. Or sometimes viewing. fourth. Yes, multiple viewings. This is an instance where I had the opportunity to sort of, you know, prep and consider whatever. I'm actively choosing. You have seen this before. I am actively choosing to wait and experience it as we go through it. So I have only seen the first two episodes of this series. I will watch it as we unpack it through this uh through this series so uh season one of dark i have seen the first two episodes uh well yeah i mean like i even today i think i tried to call you at one point just to kind of talk about our recording tonight and have kind of had in my brain i'm like i think reed has watched dark i hope he didn't forget because we just (laughs) we haven't spoken verbally in a while and then i was like ah Screw it. This will be fun. So, like, <laughs> yeah, I've, I've seen season one. I, I have not watched season two. So when oh, we get okay. there, that'll, that'll just be... be fresh for both of us. Um, Thankfully, what... the reviews are very positive. So we'll see. Oh, well, good. I haven't yeah. well, see, you've done even more than I have. <laughs> um, what do you think? Like two episodes in, what are your, what are your general takes? OK, so I'm so I'm very excited about the possibilities of this show. I will I will be honest that my notes are, are uh, scant to non-existent at this point. Sure. Um, because not knowing where the show is going, not knowing what sort of threads mean anything at this point, um, I'm on board with the the mystery that they are setting up for me and drawing me into. Um, the loose premise of the show that I can extrapolate at the moment is um, there's this small town in, uh, uh, is it Austria? or I, b- I believe, I, f- I forget exactly where this town is located, but um, there's a, a, a small town and a child has gone missing. Well, I say child. He's a teenager. Teenager has gone missing. Oh, oh. Uh, and and so this teenager. Yeah, I've heard of Mikkel, right? He's not a teenager. No, Mikkel is right, not, right. but Eric is. Right. And so, like, Eric, Oh, yeah, the redhead. Yeah, yeah. Eric has gone missing. And there are these caves on the outskirts of town in this uh, in this forested area that, you know, has an ominous sort of quality to it. Um, it's next to a nuclear power plant. And so there's there's all kinds of things that the series is sort of establishing at this point. But Eric has gone missing. We, the audience, can see that Eric is alive somewhere, but he's in like this room. And a couple of times he gets strapped to this chair and we don't quite know what's going on. I don't know quite what's going on at this moment. Well, then, this is all in the first episode, then another child that we have come to know through the course of the episode named uh, Mikkel, he also goes missing in very much the same fashion that Eric, under the same under similar circumstances in which Eric has lost. And there's all these characters that I know are going to sort of be connected. Uh, there's an affair going on. There's some infidelity. There's, uh, you know, this, this one family is sort of tendrilled out to a couple of other relationships. So I know things are going to unpack as they go along. But these first couple of episodes just sort of set the stage. I really like the tone. I really like the pacing. The the performances are really strong, even out the gate. Mm. Um and so, you know, I'm, I'm excited for the fact that this is a, 
I have not dug into specifics, but the fact that I know it is a critically praised show, uh, beloved by viewers apparently as well. Um, it has been renewed for a season three, which they've said, oh, right. I didn't yeah, know that. which they've said will be the final season. Um, cool. So, so uh, you know, there, this is well, a lot of excitement about what they could what they could be bringing up in here. But yeah, I'm on board. Well, and to contextualize, if viewers have or viewers, if listeners haven't or aren't going to watch this although i would encourage it having at least for me watched the first season it is very compelling but it came out i don't have this chronology in front of me but i'm pretty sure it came out within six to eight months of at least stranger things season two if not one oh, because it, okay. it had at least the things i was engaging that were talking about it when it released were contextualizing it as sort of a quote-unquote smarter stranger things like it's just oh. more Okay, I, that's which isn't meant to be like Stranger Things is stupid. It's not just, a ding. You know, no, no, I understand. Yeah, Stranger yeah. Things has a little bit of populist kind of like popcorny to it. You you reference this like it is a sprawling. Like I don't know if you had this experience. I remember the first time watching it, being like, I am my head is spinning from the number of characters. There's and a massive there were, amount of characters. Well, yeah. probably the first three or four episodes, it just keeps widening. Like oh my gosh. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Um, Although, let's jump to the ends of episode two and then double back a little bit. So, okay. remind, okay, remember how last week with The Endless I said, because of the sequence <laughs> of things I watched The Endless earlier than our recording? You did Dark too, didn't you? Yeah, that's funny. Oh, brother, <laughs> I mean, I watched season one when it first released, and then on a lark, because I was like, oh, we're going to be tracking through dark. It's, there's, there's a lot of, it's not a lot of episodes, but it's hour long episodes and we're doing two sure. per yeah. recording. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm like, oh, I'm going to get a little head. Not, not even paying attention to the calendar. And so I watched these, I rewatched episodes one and two, like five, six weeks ago now. Like, oh, so it's been, okay. I've got yeah, notes yeah. and I know the loose tone and, and arc, but okay. remind me where episode two ends. So episode two ends with the revelation. So, uh, Mikkel has gone missing and, I knew, well, I shouldn't say I knew, I guessed that some version of time travel was going to be involved. I shouldn't say time travel like Back to the Future stuff, but like time anomalies was going to be involved when Mikkel, the, who is a uh, a budding magician, in the first episode, and I'll tell you where he sees, episode two ends in a second, um, when he is showing a trick to his father, Ulrich, and it's this little like cup and ball trick where like, you know, you put, you cover a ball with a cup and then it magically appears into another cup and it, through sleight of hand and everything. And so then the father asks like, wow, how did you do that? And then Mikkel says back to him, the question is not how, but when. And, right. and so that's when the first pinged me. I'm like, oh, I bet time distortion or time anomalies are going to be sort of uh, in at play here because it was a very like deliberate line. Well, sure enough, Episode two ends with Mikkel making his, he's been missing for like since the end of episode one, all through episode two. Uh, where is he? This stranger character wearing the cloak pick, puts up the headline that is says, where is Mikkel? And crosses out the word where and writes, when is Mikkel? Mm -hmm. And then sure enough, Mikkel trots out of the cave back into the forest runs back home and when he open or when he knocks on the door cuz the door won't open for him when he knocks on the door he f sees a teenage version of his father exit the door looks down at the newspaper sees the uh, report about the chernobyl disaster 
and that the newspaper reads that it is 1986. And the, the, the episodes before that were very deliberate to show that we are in like late 2019 in is right. the present for the film. Um, so Mikkel has somehow through the events of this, this mystical or paranormal cave or whatever has found his way into 1986 and um so that's where it did, that's where it ends did you going into the series did you have any clue of time travel i knew nothing about it okay, I, kn- okay. I knew nothing about it except i had heard similar echoes to what you alluded to about like this is akin to stranger things but a little bit more cerebral a little bit more intellectual um and so that was all i knew i knew i did not know that time travel was a factor well it's funny because and re-watching these first few episodes i again it's been a while since i've rewatched them but Almost from the first establishing shot of whatever happens in episode one, it's all over it. Like there, mm. there are some, there are twists yet to come for you. Oh, uh, okay. In, in, season, in season one, but in terms of just like that, time travel plays a, a role. It's it's uh, pretty much in your face from go. Oh, but interesting. Not, okay. Not knowing that, I I I was real emotionally wrapped up in Mikkel's disappearance. Oh, and so sure, sure. the first time watching it. And so when that pivot happens at the end of episode two, I was blown away. I was like, mm. oh, wow. Whoa. Okay. This is, sure. this is, this is, I did not see this coming. Sure. Um, sure. So no, I, I really love it. I think it, it is, I would say it's, it, it might be challenging because it is so densely populated. Mm. Mm. You know, it's, there's a lot of characters and a lot of relationships. Like this second time through, I was writing down character names and their connections to each other. Like, cause I, Oh, interesting. There's, okay. Sure. There's, yeah. there's the parental generation of the kid characters. There's the elder generation who are the parents of those kid characters, parents. Like there's sure, a lot sure. okay. of, of, yeah. of deep stuff. So, I mean, I don't. I don't have a ton. Well, I guess. I mean, I've got a ton of just uh, plotting notes because I wanted to try to remember the story elements. Okay. Okay. But I mean, I love that score. That opening. It yeah. Uh, credit score. Absolutely. No. Absolutely. The opening credits and, in general, with all the mirror yes, imagery and everything, yes. is is really effective. It's really great. Well, and just the general tone. I mean, I, I think mm-hmm. the tone. It's it it does. It is as the title of the series suggests. It's dark. But it doesn't feel nihilistic or anything like that. It's just sure. kind of. I understand. I don't. I don't know. Like camping out with your buddies around a campfire, kind of vibe like this. Sure. Oh, sure. You know. Anyway, so I, I really enjoy it. I don't have a. You know, if, if you got more specifics you want to talk about. It was no, not really, because I will be honest that at this point everything feels very stage setting for me, uh-huh. and and yeah. that's okay. Like I'm really enjoying it, but yeah, episode one is just very much sort of establishing these interpersonal relationships with everybody. The uh, you know, the police officer who's having the affair with the you know parent of this person, and right, and, and so like all of these different relationships, I recognize are going to have some significance i just have no context for how yet so Mm -hmm. i'm really enjoying the series uh yes somehow mikhail has popped out of the cave he's back in 1986 i'm thrilled to see over the course of the next few episodes of this series uh this speaking in tongue series i'm curious to see where the show heads and yes that uh uh, that'll do that'll do it for me 
I suppose we should offer this if you want, kind of how we're structuring speaking in tongues. And sure, the dark. sure. Oh, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, we're, we are going to be doing um, – it's going to be an interesting structure more or less the rest of the year for Fear of God. But we are going to think about how we did um, previous TV guide posts, Ash vs. Evil Dead and Haunting of Hill House. So we'll do four foreign language films starting today with The Wailing uh, with two episodes each of Dark Season 1 culminating in one episode fully engaging Dark Season 1. Yes. Uh, we will then take October. What are Whoa. we doing in October, Reed? We should probably start spitting out some surveys. Yes. Uh, no, yeah. yeah. So basically in October, and we will start putting the surveys out to you uh, this week or next. Uh, but we are going to be doing, in our recent tradition, uh, we are going to be doing hashtag I love the 70s, arguably the greatest generation for horror, not because of how many horror films came out, but because of how many masterful horror films came out in the 70s. So I'm very curious to see how our listeners are going to shape these up. And as we have done traditionally uh, in October, we will be covering some entries from your top 10 of hashtag I love the 70s. So, yes. Yes. So for September, we're doing uh, Speaking in Tongues Part 1. We're taking a break in October to cover I Love the 70s. We are returning to Speaking in Tongues in November uh, to more or less mirror Phase 1. So three or four foreign language films with Dark Season 2 accompanying it, finishing with Dark Season 2 fully an episode from Fear of God. Uh, And then we'll get to December when we get there. But uh, point being, we are going to be walking through this series. What will be fun for you is the way season one ends will propel you to rewatch season one. I, I mean, I really? haven't done that oh, until now. I mean, just okay. because awesome. it's, it is a very tightly meticulous, tightly wound, meticulously plotted show. And, awesome. and okay. uh, there will come a point where you'll start to sort of suss out certain things, but okay. that won't sure. really sour any reveals to come, but understood. But no, it's, understood. it's a good show. I'm glad you're enjoying it. I'm glad um, that we're doing this. So awesome. are you ready to, um, you ready to wail, buddy? Yes. So, so let's let's formally go ahead and do it. So, uh, that concludes yet another <laughs> installment of hashtag TV Guideposts. Didn't go too dark today, but we, but we <laughs> did do two episodes of dark. And so, uh, next week, join us for two more of the Netflix original TV series, Dark. And uh, I got nothing much else to say about that. <laughs> Welcome to. We'll see you next week on hashtag oh TV guys. I'm just going to fade. <laughs> wow. Wow. You are speaking a foreign language right now, brother. Oh my gosh. That's awesome. So, um, okay. So formally wrapping up this installment of TV guideposts, um, something that I want to do. So uh, something that we have not mentioned yet on how speaking in tongues is going to work is we were pretty intentional, sometimes painfully so, and we're going to be covering a different language, a different nation, uh, a different geographical region for every episode. And so in that spirit, some of these entries, uh, like when we go, for instance, The Wailing is a Korean film, specifically from South Korea. And it is very difficult uh, because there's some great films that also came out of South Korea that uh, it's hard to choose which one you're going to cover. So 
with each installment, before we dive into the film proper, I'm just going to briefly recommend uh, one or two additional films from this region that I think listeners uh, should check out. Some of the recommendations are going to be cautious and with asterisks. Some of them are going to be full-bodied and hearty. Um, but with this particular one, uh, the hands-down most popular, most successful, and uh, many consider one of the greatest horror films to come out of Korea was in fact uh, Train to Busan, which we've done. Oh, really? Yeah, which we've done a full episode about. You can go back and listen to that. Check out that film. It's a good movie. Um, yes. So, uh, kind of a soft recommendation to there. I am going to formally recommend by the same director the prequel to Train to Busan, Soul Station, which is an animated film that takes place uh, either the night before or like two nights before the events of Train to Busan. Um, it's a darker film. It is uh, a bit heavier, but it is uh, very powerful. It does not pack the wallop that Train to Busan does, either for thrills or emotional impact, but it is very, very strong. It's very good. So I'd highly recommend it'd be Soul really, Station. It'd be really great if it was called Car to Train to Busan. <laughs> like this people driving to the Uber station. to train to Busan <laughs> Uber to car to bus to boat to right right to right um, you, so, got, you got it you got it <laughs> so yes yeah, so Soul Station uh, I would highly recommend that film um, also I would recommend but this is a cautious recommendation I would also recommend a film called I Saw the Devil. The reason it's a cautious recommendation is because Nathan Rouse, uh, it is a very powerful film. It's very affecting. Uh, we may eventually get to covering it at some point, but I cannot stress enough how heavy and challenging the film is to watch. It is very, very difficult to sit through, both for its graphic violence, the general heaviness of its themes. Um, it is a difficult film to watch, but it is a powerful film and if you can stomach it, and that is a very big if, if you can stomach it, I think it uh, it is worth seeing because it is very affecting in the kinds of ways that people who, who can engage comfortably with challenging cinema will find some rich rewards in it. So that film is called I Saw the Devil, um, and uh, it is uh, also comes out of South Korea. And uh, The Wailing is, you know, is its own version of challenging, which we'll get into, but I wanted to give a couple of recommendations. Train to Busan, of course, Soul Station, and I Saw the Devil are also from this same country, and they're also very powerful and affecting films, and I highly recommend them. Well, I, I appreciate you as a person. I appreciate you as our curator of <laughs> the films we're going to be covering. You, you do a lot of legwork, and I'm appreciative of that. In the spirit of that, like, have you had what was your experience with the whaling before this had you seen it so it was very i had seen it it was very it it had made a lot of buzz when it came out when it was first released in 2016 um so what's interesting is that films that make it over to american markets from foreign countries um Many of them, it's like a ha sometimes they have a reputation where it's like, oh man, foreign films are so much better. What we forget is that, with with some exceptions, like films that really make a big splash here are of the high quality, of right, the high right. caliber. You know, there's 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 tons produced uh, in in nations all over the world. Um, but when a film from a foreign country makes it over here, then a lot of times it is because it is so highly critically praised it is so highly popular so when the whaling came over i first spotted it on netflix and heard about it there was a lot of buzz surrounding it um, i didn't know much of anything about the story but i checked it out when it was there and was very affected by it i was i was really taken with it from first viewing it is a daunting length because it is not only two and a half hours it is it is bordering on two hours and 40 minutes so it is a daunting sort of runtime. but i found it 
very, very affecting. I was impressed that it deals so directly with spiritual themes. Again, that's not a prerequisite for my enjoying a film, but I appreciate a film that is not shy away from that kind of symbolism and that kind of exploration. So I was appreciative of that. Um, I have some quotes from a, from the director that I will uh, introduce at some point in the conversation. But but yeah, so I, again, I, I watched it on Netflix. I was very taken with it. I did purchase it, and so I was thrilled and excited to we there was a lot of debate about what would launch the series <laughs> of speaking in tongues and we debated about a few films here and there um when i finally pushed and said i want to start with the wailing uh one viewing one rewatch of it again just made me so glad and thrilled that i did because i was really excited to revisit this film and uh, obviously we'll get into uh, a lot of different things but yeah that's my history with it very cool yeah i was totally unfamiliar with it going in and knew nothing about the premise fi- or anything right no. Yeah. Uh, and it's funny because your reference just now to leading with it when you pitched it as the opener to speaking in tongues, just I I, I didn't know what to expect. I was like, okay, well, what's that going to be about? And I'm I'm a little curious to hear you articulate once we get closer into theme thematic stuff, kind of what you know drove you to okay, this is why I think it's a good launch pad, but. I mean, it's um, as a brief little summary, and and you know, it's a pretty densely it's a complex film. film. Yeah, yeah. But the short of it is, the lead character is this cop, and he lives in this kind of provincial little Korean, you know, kind of fishing town, effectively. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you just get the feeling that's a very small sort of region, and citizens of this kind of village start succumbing to these really um it's almost like zombie type movie like in other words you know oh he's so as an investigator as a policeman he just shows up to these crime scenes that oh sure this person went crazy and killed their family that happens iteratively multiple times in the film right um right, right, and right. so as as the story starts to narrow uh, certain characters present as is this person causing this so it's got a bit of mystical kind of supernaturality to it, but you don't really get into that until late in it. But again, it's two and a half hours long. I thought this watching it, I was like, this, this could have been, and I'm sure when dumb Americans adapt it, it will be <laughs> like that. That was unfairly pejorative. I'm sorry. Um, I don't know. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll okay. finish your statement. And then yeah. I'll, I'll, all I was going to say it. is like the movie itself feels like, a mini series or like a, sure, a season yeah. of TV. Cause so much happens in it. Sure. Yeah. Uh, oh yeah. You know, kind of every 20 minutes, you're kind of turning a corner into a whole new chunk of, of story. Absolutely. Um, and so all I was saying is I'm sure when we adapt it, it's going to be like the padded, yeah. you know, oh, 10, yeah. 10, epi- 10 episode hour long episodes, like, just ridiculousness. Well, honestly, um, I would prefer that yeah. adaptation to what I think is more likely, which will be some, you know, sort of pared down, you know, That's two, two yeah. hour theatrical release, which, you know, like uh, the reason I uh, didn't balk so highly at your 
you know, uh, sort of dumb remake. I let it not be said. I am on record on the podcast with our episode saying I am in the rare minority that prefers the American Matt Reeves directed. Let me in to let the right one in. I am in the right. minority on that camp and I embrace that. That's, that's understandable. I, and I think there have been some remakes that have been very successful in doing some creative inventive things. I think a lot of that depends on the director, but uh, this is a film that does feel very of, What's weird. What's weird is it feels of its place. Although, granted, I'm so woefully ignorant of Korean culture myself. Right. Um, even making a statement like that feels arrogant and 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 a bit beyond my depth. But this feels. Well, I think what you're trying to say is appropriate. That it feels of a place. Yes. Like yes. It, very, it, very specific. It feels rooted to a specific context. But in the same way, it also is this blend of these different, particularly religious practices and and religious notions that are melding together in with one another. There's a, there's a, a primitive uh, sort of shamanism that is at play in the film directly, but also some overt expressions of Christianity, which I find very fascinating. And, and so I feel like when it gets Americanized, depending on who does it, and depending on what they approach it with, I don't know if they're going to be willing to bring the depth of boldness right. of 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 having in this in a similar way that part of what I admire about the Wicker Man is that it takes both paganism and Christianity very seriously. That it that you know there, there's some challenging challenges people have to the way that film ends, but I think it's undeniable that the the breadth of the film it's treating those respective disciplines perspectives. Uh, very seriously, and I feel like this film does the same thing with its subject matter, and I feel like that's something that once it gets studiofied and once it gets Americanized, right, that right. begins to dilute a lot for the sake of plot and spectacle, and so that's why I'm not balking too much at what, like, I I don't want a remake of this. This film is something that, skipping to my, you know, my end, I, I love this film, and uh, I feel like in its present form is one of the most ideal ways to experience this film. And so, yeah, so I, I, I would uh, grow. Well, and, and, and in your defense, I mean, let me in as an uncommonly good remake. It is, it is, it really is. Um, can I read just, I'm, I'm so torn about whether or not to share these thoughts from the director that I found that I stumbled across out the gate or you know to to do them in theme i'll I'll parse them in as i as i can i only have one trivial bit to this and i think it's really fun uh only because we just so recently covered hereditary ari aster officially the director of hereditary officially cited this as his favorite horror film of the past 10 years really Um, yeah wow yeah he he adores this film and heaped a ton of praise on it. I think they, they had asked him, you know, like what, what are some of his favorites or whatever, but he cited the wailing as his favorite horror film of the past 10 years. Well, it's, it's funny. Cause I think there's a lot of parallels to hereditary. I mean, it's, yes. it's a, a oh, supernatural yeah. noose tightening around a family unit. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And, uh, the, these ideas of deception and these ideas of like being led into places that you don't really know, if these places are safe or trustworthy or who to trust. And yeah, there's a, there's a lot going on, uh, going on in that. I think what's fascinating, this, this is kind of getting into likes, dislikes, unless you have some specific yeah, trivia yeah, bits. Um, so, so I do love the film. I feel like that you, you referenced this with dark just a few moments ago. 
that when you get to the end, it's going to make you want to watch the whole thing again. Yes. Yes. I feel like the wailing absolutely yes. does that to you. That that definitely. W- definitely. once you see the ending of and, and it and we're talking about a 2 hour and 40 minute film. Once you see the final beats of the film, you you know, given time and space are almost immediately like I have got to see that again. Well, like well, I have yeah, there, anyway. There there's that verbal response and then there's the verbal response that I basically had which was that gummit. <laughs> <laughs> because you know like ah there's yeah, yeah. Ah, there's, there's no so time. much yeah. that's 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 well not just there's no time yes that's the that's the bottom line ultimately but just this notion of like the desire to but just yeah, like of course I, of course i can't yeah. jump right back into this <laughs> um <laughs> and i, I want will to. say like yeah and I, and I will say like this is only my second time through but Man, it, it it holds up. It's it's rewarding. It's it's well. It, there's, and, there's a lot here. Yeah. Well, it's funny because my notes, and I'll share them as we go, track along the path of ignorance to the narrative. And so, sure, sure. You know, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, so, Dude. so, someone who's seen this movie multiple times will hear a note and be like, "You dummy!" I'm like, well, I, you know, these are first responses to the as you go watching. No, of course, of course. And oh my gosh, like little things like. It opens up with that biblical passage from Luke where Jesus is saying, you know, does a ghost have flesh and blood as I have? See, it as I myself, you know, and which plays very heavily into the final moments of the film. Sure. But then the very first opening shot we have, Nathan, is of that Japanese man putting a worm onto a hook, yeah. baiting. And I'm just like, even, and, and, and I was sitting there watching and I was like, oh my God, it's right here, right from the beginning. Like that, that man baiting something and that, how that carries through in the remainder of the film. So yes, it is a film that highly rewards looking back at it in the, in the fresh context that you have with what happens at the end of the film, which we will spoil, by the way. If you have any yeah. interest in seeing this film, if you've been meaning to, uh, we we don't often say this because it is pretty obvious, but we are going to spoil elements of this film that I think you need to experience them the way this film gives them to you. So uh, watch this film. I do highly recommend it. Uh, seek it out. See it. Come back to our conversation because we're gonna we're gonna spoil all of it. Well, and you you just made a note that I want to uh, you know talk about a little bit. You referenced specifically the Japanese man, so in the context of the film. And this is when I say I was watching it with an eye towards, I wonder why Reed chose this one as a, as mm, an initial, mm. an initial choice. Part of it was, Oh, the stranger in our midst kind of idea uh, of yeah. because, and I wouldn't have known this and, and I'm basing this take on the film itself, not so much my knowledge of, of Asian cultural interactions, but the characters in this Korean fishing town speak very pejoratively of this Japanese man who yes, is yes. kind of camping out in the region uh, for an extended time and continue to do so. And and it's clear there's suspicion and mm-hmm. kind of friction, perhaps eth- ethnicity wise between Korean folk and at least this Japanese guy, if not maybe Japanese people in general. So mm-hmm. that, that becomes kind of an undergirding aspect um, sure, suspicion sure. of the other kind of idea. Although, like, for all of the horrific places this movie goes, mm, um, mm. we reference in passing, but so it is clear, 
it kind of primarily focuses on this family, this husband, yes. his wife, their daughter, Hujin, and the grandmother who lives with him. Yes. And Hujin is this super sweet kid that takes a real sour turn. It's sad. But mm, yeah, yeah. <laughs> for all the, the for all the horror in this movie, oh, that daughter seeing her parents have sex in the car. Now that <laughs> is that's a nightmare. That is oh my gosh. a nightmare. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. So crazy. Like, and then when he looks over and catches it. So, no, yeah, that is horrific. I, I, I am in terror just thinking about that. Oh happening. my gosh. When, when he turns around and just gasps uproariously. Yes. That, oh, it's that, great. Like, how long well, he's he just like, there? Yeah. Doesn't he keep barking at her to go away or something? Like, yes. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. It's, was... it, it's pretty hysterical. And then later they're calm by the river and he's all like, and he's all like, so how much did you see? Right. <laughs> it's, yeah. yeah it's, it, it's pretty And funny. then he's like, you saw all of it, didn't you? <laughs> um, that's, you know well, what's funny? I, what? Is, Tell me. Uh, sorry to cut you off, but, but like, uh, there's a surprising amount of humor in the first third of this film. Like, it's, yes, it's, it's pretty I, comical. I referenced that multiple times. That this kind of undertone of comedy and or dark comedy in places. Um, I do love. I love, and it doesn't hurt that I have three of them, but I love the relationship of him to the daughter. Oh, like it, it is, yes. Yeah. It is. Yeah. It's beautiful and sweet at, when it's supposed to be, and it's terrible and tragic when it's supposed to be. It um, really is. Yeah. And, yeah. but, but it's most exemplified. <laughs> oh boy. When he, when she shows up at the precinct with his clothes. Yeah. <laughs> and I, yes, the, the, yes. the note I wrote read was no, but really who farted? <laughs> <laughs> There's this oh, great gosh, bit so if you, I mean, again, you sh- you ought to watch the film. It is a very strong film, but there's this great bit where, you know, they've got, he, he and the daughter have this playful relationship. She, so he's gotten in a mess, uh, like has, has kind of gotten dirty from a crime scene yeah, is back yeah. at the precinct. The mother sends her to bring him new clothes. And there's just this shot that holds this wide shot of a couple other cops in the precinct he and her in the background and you just hear this extended flatulence <laughs> and then she just has this little grin and that's the end of the scene it is it is yes, lovely I yes oh yeah it's so great um and that is something that i really appreciate about it even in subsequent viewings it does take this steady flow where in the first maybe hour of the film there's a lot of laced in humor and there's a specific scene and and I like the scene. It's a very powerful scene. It's a devastating scene, particularly in the context of the film. But when he confronts the Japanese man, they call him. That's rough. Uh, yeah. Like this man uh, comes in. I've I've seen him. So what's interesting about it, in the context of the film, they use a a, a derogatory term. But when I hear interviews or when I read interviews about the way that the film crew refer to him, they refer to him as the stranger. Hmm. That's what they refer to him as. And and that is part of what I think is crucial to understanding what the what the ultimate conceit of, of the film is. But they basically they you speak very derogatorily to him. This man comes and this police officer, our main character, comes and he's upset because he's seen the possession and he's seen all of the different elements in the in the city and these people you know sort of losing their minds getting possessed in a sort of zombie-esque fashion they break out in these boils and and he's starting to see this thing happen 
to his daughter. And prime suspect number one is this Japanese stranger that's been in their midst. And so when the police officer goes and confronts him about it, it's that hideous ratcheting up of the violence. And uh, when he's when he's amping that up, it culminates into like the destruction of the man's property, and it culminates into him literally like mortally wounding the man's dog. And it's it it it's that's, hideous. Yeah. I wrote and, the note I wrote that I'm sorry to cut you off. No, you're fine. You're fine. I didn't, I didn't know if you're aiming for a better point that I was hijacking. Um, no. Right there, I wrote, I said, I don't know, man. I feel bad for this guy, but you don't go and kill a man's dog. That ain't no, right. No, that, no, that ain't, ain't right. right. That ain't right. And and so that's the thing that, like, that's the moment watching it this time through that the humor sort of stops. From that point on, and that's a, a little over an hour into the film, from that point on, the the humor is no longer laced in in what's in what's happening uh it, it's it gets heavier it gets darker it gets rougher and and it all sort of pivots and hinges on that moment and you find out later in the film that that moment kind of was the thing that uh that really sort of sealed this man's uh, fate in him being locked into this this confrontation. Um, so yeah, it's it's pretty it's pretty rough. It's pretty devastating well, that's moment. Speak, speaking of the humor, uh, you'll appreciate this, and 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 I hope recognize the, the the layered nature of these references. You you mentioned the people when they get sick, they get these boils and or rashes, yeah, and I wrote yeah. I wrote these poor folks with their rashes. I mean, I've had rashes in my armpits, on my butt cheeks, on my gonads. <laughs> That's awesome. Oh, um, but I love backing up a hair just because you're you're highlighting the humor aspect. I loved the moment. I almost and actually I wrote this note his his partner. I wrote yes. that yes. I love what tonally feels a little like Rosencrantz and Guildenstern with these two oh. like bumbling cops. They're kind of in over their head while the periphery of their world is falling apart. But this is exemplified where they go to interview. Um, he's not a suspect, but he's been he's been attacked by someone in the woods. That's what it was. Oh, and okay. they reference the naked man wandering the woods, which <laughs> yes. we, haven't, we haven't even talked about. But um, that he's in a diaper. So this person they're interviewing referenced <laughs> the old man in the diaper. And, right, right. And these two cop characters, one of whom is our primary lead start engaging this conversation about the need for adults to have diapers. And it's like, <laughs> and I love it because the two lines I wrote, one of them says, bladder control problems are surprisingly common in adults. <laughs> and then the other one says, but why go into the woods to treat incontinence? <laughs> <laughs> They're taking the conversation very seriously. Oh, yes. Like, yeah, it's why. hilarious. I don't understand. Oh, man, it's great. Um, yeah, well, do it's... you, do you get the impression, so a character that, gets introduced middle of the film basically is the shaman the family calls in yes. to the story yes. to kind of uh the grandmother has the grandmother the is the one contact point it. right yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. um so they bring in the shaman whose intention is because hujin the daughter is getting progressively worse and like that's heartbreaking i texted you in the middle of the road or the middle yeah. of the movie i was like yeah. this is this is going to be bad. Like, this is not. Yeah. Because the, the second yeah. she starts getting sick, you're like, oh, man, this sucks. Um, so they call him the shaman. And and who knows? Maybe I'm reading too much into this. But what is bubbly humor on the f- first half of the movie 
Call me crazy, but the cacophony and the ostentatiousness of his, the Death Hex, yes, yes, is has almost like a darkly comic undertone to it. It's so sure, sure. Yeah. okay, okay. I didn't know if I was just crazy. I'm like, I'm not like laughing, but it's so yeah. his outfit and and the sustained volume of what's happening in that scene is sure. so. I, I don't know. It was just interesting. Well, to me. and. What's what's fascinating to me about that? First of all, the, the trivial bit: he, um, that actor, th- in in the film, it is broken up by several different point of view shots, and it is broken up by several. It's intercutting with the exorcism that he is performing, but also the stranger, the Japanese stranger, is also performing a ritual of sorts, and it is juxtaposing the two moments together, but. When the actor performed that, the actor performed it all in one unbroken take. That they then the the young shaman, not yeah the, the young stranger. the young shaman oh, okay. yeah the young shaman wow. performed that entire thing, uh, like rehearsed it a couple of times and performed it in an unbroken take. Um, I, I don't know if the intention was continuity purposes or fervor or energy or whatever it was. So that sequence and most of what they use of that is uh, he really is sort of in the throes of that. And I do think what's funny is. I do think there's a darkly comic tone to it, but I think there was a direct intention uh, in the same way, man, I keep, I didn't expect to bring up the Wicker Man so much, but in the same way that we would view like the dancing around the Maypole stuff in Wicker Man as, you know, like it's, we kind of uh, approach that humorously. That is part of its taking the paganism there very seriously. And and in the same way, this film, like that, that shaman ritual, the the execution of the chickens, and uh, then the eventual attempt at executing the goat, like those are those are elements of at least mythologically that culture and that that sort of religious ritual that I feel like it it is. It's like you view it and you it's you kind of feel a, it, that it's a little absurd or you feel a little silly by it, but. Part of it is their deep commitment to just sort of expressing this. I do want to read one quote. So there's a there's a great interview that the playlist.net did with the director of the Wailing. If you if you Google search it, uh, you should be able to find it pretty easily. But the the director in this interview in the playlist, um, there's a specific thing that they asked where it says, you know, the scene with the shaman casting the hex is instantly iconic especially with the way it uses very loud drums, energetic editing between the shaman and the stranger. What kind of effect did you, the, did you want the audience to have with the music and the editing in this particular sequence? And this is the director's response. He says, In an attempt to find primitive religions that still exist, I traveled to many Asian countries, including Korea, to collect information. Every time I witnessed a ritual, whatever the purpose it may be, I experienced heart-bursting excitement followed by serious dizziness, and my reactions would be all but naturally expected from a person watching the offerings burn in licking flames. But I wanted to convey those feelings to the audience by believing and wholly staging that exact value, which has been passed down for thousands of years. The music used in the sequence is played by actual shamans, and all the actions played are the same as in the ritual of exorcism performed in real life. I secretly wondered if any audience would have a seizure or something, but thankfully that didn't happen. His final note on it is he says, ironically, 
this sequence deals with a situation outside of the biblical context that caused the decline of existing genre of occult. It motivated me to shape the wailing into an occult film, and the sequence symbolizes the flexibility and differentiated origin from my identity both as Asian and as a Christian. He cites elsewhere that the, the, director, oh, wow. is a, yeah, the director is a Christian. Um, he cites that elsewhere. Well, I'm, I'll maybe quote that a little bit later. But, um, so, but, but again, this speaks to my broader point being that basically this is, you know, he, he wanted to treat this seriously. He wanted to approach it seriously. He wanted to present it with a sense of authenticity. And so while, yes, some darkly comic feelings kind of emerge, I do love the the sure, yeah, the yeah, weight yeah. Uh, b- behind the approach to it and appreciate and that I, about it. And I that's very informative. And, and I sincerely didn't mean darkly comic in a dismissive tone or dismissive mm, way. Mm. I just it's it's so sure, sure. kind of sensorily overwhelming you're like yeah Um, oh yeah let me let me ask you are you open are you okay if i unpack the the plot a bit so that i can ask you some questions about your response to it go ahead all right so we've loosely alluded it's a family caught in the noose of a thing so the stranger that we keep referencing uh is suspected of being this negative force and or possibly ghost as as they're talking about um but you know, there's challenges to that notion in various places. Well, peripherally, and I don't know that she even enters until, I don't know, 20, 30 minutes, like mm. this is a long, this is a long movie. There's a female character, this young, uh, uh, attractive, but kind of, you know, what might be in a, in a supernatural film seen as the seducer type character, right. but is kind of the playful. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's kind of playful on the periphery. Like, you don't mm-hmm. know if this is just a townsperson that's kind of wandering onto these various scenes kind of thing, but starts to recur. And ultimately, ultimately, what kind of reveals itself is a bit of this dualistic Jacob Man in Black and or, right, you know, right. devil, devil, maybe Christ figure. I, don't, I think that's a little strong, but maybe we'll get there. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. yeah, 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 I know. Um I'm not neglecting or rejecting that. Just rest sure. No, it, I understand. Yeah, there's a yeah. lot. Um, remember, I, f- I finished it and I said, "Dad, gummit." Like that's the feeling. Um, <laughs> I know. No, I know. Well, what you kind of get revealed, I think, and this is sort of where I'm leading to with questions, is this shaman that the grandmother calls in. I think, in the final analysis, feels like is revealed to be, if not directly working with the stranger who in fact mm. is the bad the bad guy ultimately um yes. is at least supporting by proxy this character so i guess yes what I, where i want to go in terms of my question to you is the first time you saw this if you can recollect do you remember the feelings of going through and be like okay well i'm leaning this to, oh, wait now i'm leaning that way. you know what i mean like um, I was, if if I understand your question correctly, I was very much on the ride that the that they were taking me to. I thought that they were about to show me, oh no, you know, it wasn't the stranger the whole time. It was this woman, and the woman was behind sure. it all. And and so, like when the shaman is having his big freak out and everything, I was on board with the shaman the entire way through, and was pretty uh, floored by oh no he is he is not right a benevolent being in their life like he is a predatory 
malevolent figure. Um, I was very floored by that in my first viewing. And, uh, and it is fascinating watching some of those same scenes where in your viewing, I would imagine you would view it as something of a akin to like a, a, a spiritual warfare, maybe not those language, but like he's being attacked by something and is trying to sort of overpower this malevolent thing. You then, when you know what the real conceit is and go back and watch those same scenes, it's like, oh, dang, <laughs> like he's the, these are the moments when they almost won. You know, it's it, yeah, it's well, so it's I guess then crazy. articulate that a little bit. So like the the death hex and and i refer to that phrase twice they use it in the movie this is what they call the young shaman in to try to exercise hujin but effectively envision like this voodoo-esque not voodoo the religion but like what we would call a voodoo doll but it's like this totem figure yes. it's like a big yeah. piece that he's hammering these kind of giant nails into by the end of it that are affecting uh, that this act is affecting both Hujin, the little girl, and the stranger. So I guess what I'm mm-hmm. trying to ask you is, how do you read that scene? Is it he's just doing enough? Like, because clearly something's happening to the stranger because of this hex. Yeah, well, n- not because of the hex. That's the diversion of the film. That's the misdirection of the film. Because if, I don't know if you remember it, but immediately following the stranger's sort of... uh like uh, he's convulsing and he's going right, through some some right. pains and stuff like that. That woman is on the outskirts. She's in the she's in the woods out there, um, and we don't see what she's doing out there. But she is there and she is watching him, and he is clearly unnerved by her. Which, when the film leads you through its misdirection, you begin to think he's unnerved by her because she's really the antagonist of the film. Right. Turns out that no, she is the one who's been trying to intercede on on this family's behalf. And so so the the man is is the stranger is in there performing his thing. Uh, the shaman supposedly in his death hex um, performing, you know, a supportive measure to that end and the woman is there kind of undermining what they're doing. Interesting. Um, and so that and so that is not at all clear the first time through the film, but knowing who all the players are when you go right, back through it right. again you're like oh that's and i paid particular attention to that scene uh, uh, the director is very uh sort of hands off with the actions of the woman in white he does not show us a lot of what she physically does but right. he, he frequently tags in with her continual presence in certain places and so you, you that pings for you more when you watch it a second time through do you um, I didn't look at IMDb to know how they credit the, the the stranger character, but they call her the mysterious woman. Yes, and uh, they call him Japanese man. Oh, okay. Yeah. So it's Much, just it's a yeah. lot less mystique to that one. Yeah, Although, exactly. I mean, it does it does kind of make sense because I guess if you do call him some mystical name, it's going to be a bit of a you know a bit of a tell. Sure. I, I yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he is, uh, and so that's the thing. So like articulating my other moment too, like there's a moment where the shaman who presumably thinks he has, he has won where he, because do you remember the moment when, uh, our main character brings his friends back to the home of the stranger? Oh yeah. They're going to confront him and there's that big freaking fight and it, and it ends with, uh, the man being like thrown off yeah. of, of a precipice, and then uh, you know, well, they... are you refer- so? There's kind of two 
throw slash falls, there's the he cliff hits side. Their car. Right. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yes. After the. Okay. So when they roll him over the embankment. Yeah. 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 Immediately after they roll him over the embankment. Immediately after it, it cuts to the shaman with a big look of relief on his face, and he says, the rat has fallen into the trap. Okay? Now, first time viewing, you would think, I did, you probably did as well if you registered that line at all, think, oh, we've won. The, you know, this, this thing has, uh, has happened, and this because the shaman says out the gate that that man is a ghost, and he is malevolent intentions, and they've got to undo him, right? And so when you think that this threat has been hurled off the cliff, then, uh, it, then it would seem the rat has fallen into the trap. Like, you know, the trap has been laid, and we're successful. The rat being the stranger. Is that what that's, you're saying that's in this what context? You would, that's what you would think. That's the first time through, but again, it's a it's a profound misdirection because then when the police officer asks the woman in white at the end, why me? Why did he do this? And she tells him point blank. I should have written the quote down, but she tells him point blank. It's because you tried to kill him like and 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 that it was basically because of his choosing of violence and his decision to try to go and to try to threaten and ultimately to try to kill that man, that's what marked him as a a prey for this right. being, which when you look back at that shaman scene after he tries to throw the man off the cliff, you look back at that, and the shaman is not referring to the rat falling in the trap, meaning that the the stranger has been right, right. You know, defeated, but rather now the police officer is in there clutches because well, of what he has done. I'm going to add an extra layer to that because you you left out an image and that is when they and this is what I thought was being referred to by the rat has fallen into the trap. When they when the group of men roll uh the stranger over the roadway off the cliff, there's a shot of um Jong-gu, which I doubt is how you pronounce it, but that's the dad's name. Yeah. There's a shot of him in frame with the mountainside, the forested mountainside in the background, and in the woods you see the woman in white, the mysterious woman. Ah, yes, yes. So when he says the rat has fallen into the trap, I thought he was, and I do think this is intentional, that the implication was Jong-gu has accidentally ensnared himself in her. Yeah. Right. And her designs, you know. Yes, yes. Um, Which is the no, way I mean, that the film leads you for most oh, of its runtime. Totally. You know? Well, yeah. and well, it's so funny because I remember just the arc of the experience of watching it being like, there's no way it's The Stranger. It's just so, it's too easy. Yeah. You know, it's, it's yeah. like that. But then, and especially during the death hex scene, because I wasn't contextualizing if I even noticed the woman in white present being in there, the geography. Right, right. But I thought, he would i thought his incantation was an intercession because mm-hmm. in my head yeah, of course okay he's ultimately gonna be an okay dude um so he was interceding against the death hex you know this oh is how i perceived gosh. it yeah um, of course of course do you I mean, there's there's a lot of this is a long movie and there's a lot going on <laughs> so in it much. a last <laughs> right. a last little note and then if you want we can get into scares or whatever but um i i love it's a really powerful even though where it goes is even worse, uh, heartbreaking scene of once Hujin has been, you think, exercised in the hospital oh, between the two of them. Are oh, you okay? Are you okay? Yeah, Goodness yeah, gracious. Yeah, I, I mean, that's... this, you know, 
I I would be interested in rewatching this because there's such a high bar, you know, not just the runtime, but it is foreign language. You're trying to get your brain on the frequency. Right. You know, of course. And, and of so course. there's a way, I think, even some of the emotionality and you're also trying to understand the tone of what you're watching. Sure. Um, of course. Some of the emotionality was a little lost on me, but I would be intrigued to watch it again to kind of pick up some of these nuances. I will tell you this. I texted you at the end of it which was at like 1130 last night, uh, I did go back and rewatch most of the final engagement between him. Uh, and just okay. Just sure. to re because yeah. I was like, I'm not going to rewatch this movie right now, but I, I kind of got to understand what on earth I just sort of. Right. right Once you right, know, right. basically the intentions of the players, it, it re repaints the whole thing. It really does. It really does. And her final scream when he breaks away from oh, her man. is all the more devastating when you recognize that she is actually telling the truth and is fighting to save his daughter. It's uh, it's heartbreaking. It's utterly heartbreaking. And that is something. So I don't have any more likes, dislikes. If you want, no, we can kind of pivot in, into scares. Um, number one, I think the shots, which you later learn were not dreams of the man, the stranger in his sort of diaper if you will uh, but with those red eyes and the predatory sort of stalking th- those shots are freaky like some of those oh, sequences absolutely. are really harrowing so yeah I, I get really unnerved by those well I guess that is that is and this is not the way I'm going to introduce this sounds like a ding against the movie I don't mean that it's just trying to wrestle my comprehension of it but I, I those were hard because that's why it felt like oh well one, there were moments where I couldn't tell if it was the same actor, not because, oh, okay. you know, just because yeah, I'm yeah, like, yeah. well, it's clearly an older person. That's an older person. Are these the same people? Are we supposed to be right. thinking this is the same right. person? I'm pretty sure this is not a dream, at least in total. You know, it, I don't know. I was I was confused for the first kind of half hour. Like, I, I don't, it was, it was kind of hard to figure out what I was watching. Sure, sure. No, I understand. But yeah, it uh, those shots are very, very, unnerving unsettling the entire sequence where the rejuvenated man from the truck comes and attacks the posse yeah yeah, like, yeah, yeah. oh my gosh that is what a nerve-wracking scene what i wrote down at that moment was zombies demons ghosts animal mutilation this movie has everything <laughs> <laughs> um and then the other the, the other the only other thing that i wrote down for scares although there are some pretty horrific mo- moments throughout the film uh, but the only other thing that that pinged me to write down for scares was when, again, I'm we are going to be so off. The one thing that makes me nervous about doing this whole series about speaking in tongues is how we're going to butcher these names. Um, but like when the police officer Jong Hu or Jong Gu, when he goes and sees what his daughter has done at the end, uh, mm. when mm. when when he sees, I mean, it's devastating. But that terrifying. little that little actor is great. She's, She's awesome. Oh man! I mean that that final scene of her eating is is oh. terrifying. Oh my gosh! I I read that for the exorcism scene and her contortions and everything that she actually spent a little bit of time studying dance so oh. that she so that she knew how to position her body so that she could be in control, wouldn't hurt herself. Uh, but but yeah, she's she's outstanding. She's wonderful in the film, and yeah, I, it's just it's devastating. I do think I do think this I'd have this as a scare, but the discovery of the death shrine at the fisherman's house, coupled with the dog attack, oh, is pretty intense. But gosh, 
you know, and, and maybe what I am was at least on a one go around comprehending his personal confusion is kind of a kudos to the film where they, they put it all right in front of you. Like they it's, do. yeah. And I don't, and I don't yeah. mean in a, um, like, okay, take the movie hereditary. It's only in the end when you know there's a death cult that you can start to see the hints of it. Like this right. isn't really a case of the hints. It's like, um, this stranger dude, is wandering the woods in a diaper, eating things and people, and has a death shrine in his house. Like, sure, right, right. You know what I mean? Oh, like, yeah, like. Yeah. But, but you as a viewer, you're like, no way. This is a two and a half hour movie. That can't be right. <laughs> right. <laughs> that, that ain't right. Ain't right. That can't be right. <laughs> um, so, whole new meaning. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, uh, and I think that, like, I applaud the film's willingness to be so boldly like its ending is just so hard hitting in all of its implications. And I have a couple of other things that I want to read from the uh, two more quotes specifically that I want to read from the director from that playlist interview. But it it really is. It is a film that I, it's remarkable how devastating it leaves you. And yet, as we've said multiple times already, leaves you wanting to immediately at least revisit some of what you've seen, if not all of what you've seen to, even just sort of wrap your head around it, even to just sort of understand exactly what it is that you've witnessed and, and what it all meant. So did you have any more scares on your list? Um, I mean, there's stuff on it. it, it all, you know, I'm kind of curious just to get to some thematic stuff. I, I will say one of the final moments of uh, the shaman's, what I call nosebleed barf yeah. explosion in the oh. road is like, that's oh, that's awful. so terrible. That's awful. Well, and God, I mean, it can't, it, it can't go unsaid. I don't know why I didn't write this down. The film ends partially with a confrontation between a priest character who was introduced earlier in the film and this Japanese stranger in a cave. When the stranger is revealed to be demonic, if not the devil himself, that is a terrifying sequence. That's so... Oh, my... That was... Amazing. I mean, it's stunning. Absolutely stunning. Because, because again, like even up until then, you'll remember this. You've seen it twice. But when that actor emits that sinister (gasps) laugh, the frame. Oh my god! But even then, I'm like, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) You're like, there's something going on. I'm not convinced. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When he laughs, and then right after that, because because what makes him laugh is the priest says, show me your true form and I'll leave. I'll leave you alone. Right. And then when right. he laughs, on one hand, you're like, okay, all right, that laugh's a little sinister. I don't like this. This is a little uncomfortable. And then he <laughs> follows the he follows the laugh. Not the response you're I was like, expecting. Oh, this, is a bit, this is a little weird. Anybody else see this? You know, and so, <laughs> but then after he laughs, he says, you think I'll let you leave? I'm like, oh, right. and that's where, I don't know if you had this experience, but like, if you're really on the wavelength of this movie, I had an autonomic response to that. Like my blood pressure dropped because I was like, oh my God, like what, what am I witnessing? What am I seeing? Like, because up until that time, he's been very much like this sort of victim. He's, he's been vulnerable. We've seen him be, uh, appear frightened, appear emotional, appear all this thing. So when that pivots and then he's like, he starts that sinister laugh and then he begins to, in the in that editing sequence that you're visualizing, while everything is falling apart with our main character as well, and he's quoting 
the words of Jesus, you know, like, and, and, and you see stigmata appear on his hands and everything. I mean, it's like, it's dark, heavy stuff. And, and he's, he's basically transforming into the devil. And he says, it is I myself, like, oh my gosh, it's just, it's haunting. It's well, but the, the brilliance of that moment, just from a film craft standpoint is there's the laugh scene where Esam challenges him to reveal his true form. It cuts back to what becomes the final engagement yeah. between John Gu and the woman in white. And then it, when it cuts back to the cavern, it's that close up of a camera in these long nailed, hairy fingered hands that you realize, Oh my God. Uh, uh, yeah. Here we are. Oh. Like, like all, all of the, all the willful cloudiness Nathan applied to the character's identity and intention is suddenly abruptly, you know, just forcefully eradicated. Oh. Like, uh, okay. <laughs> so, so what you're saying is he's the bad guy. <laughs> <laughs> In no uncertain terms. Right, right, oh right, right. Gosh. But I, I'm so, I'm so kind of compelled by, because again, I rewatched that final. Did you catch? Maybe I'm overreading. Okay. But so Esam challenges the stranger, reveal your true form. There's what what is literally this parallel action, and this is what's a really really impressive film craft happening. Is Jangu is encountering the woman in white? The shaman calls him. This is intercut with calls him on the phone. So he's present physically with her. Yeah. The shaman from earlier calls him on the phone who is compelling him. Don't believe anything she says. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, as we've descended into the heart of darkness with Esam and who we come to find is this devil person, right, creature right, thing right. and entity, um, their motivations and, and sort of uh, identity is being sl- starting to be revealed. There's this, ama- that's it's just an amazing swirl that's happening there that culminates so when right before uh we cut to esam and the the devil photo photographer sure right like right once once that final reveal happens the woman in white uh jangu turns away from her and then remember the shot is he turns slowly back towards where she was looking down and she's holding his hand yes yes i this is what i'm saying i may be overthinking this in this thread of reveal your true form is it just me or is she pale and ashen and in the remember in the background he sees this pool of blood am i making this up no you're not making it up Mm-mm. no I, I know what you're talking like about. yeah mm-hmm. like it just it just registered for me like is this her true form too like mm. like in in this note of the the trueness of these two characters identities and thus their relationship to each other yeah yeah Yeah, like she is she is because right before that especially if you know her intentions are good she's trying to be clear and yeah yeah forward and forthright and he's he's shrouded with doubt Mm -hmm. and so then when she finally takes his hand makes this physical contact Again, I may be over reading what I saw in terms of the lighting in the in the scene, but she looks ashen. She looks pale, as in, if you go do this, this is 
this a, a death. this is death. I don't think you're overreaching right. because he his visage it, it couldn't be the lighting because his visage is specifically it's not the same. That. Yes, he is very st- right. still full color to his cheeks. Um, he's in a, a heightened emotional state, so there's you know there's almost a redness there. Um, so yeah, comparatively speaking, how did you, you know, interpret re- the blood pool? Well, see, here's where I'm here's where I s- start to lose a little bit of traction on what specific things mean specific things. There is tons of religious symbology in the film that I know is deliberate, but I would not even be able to begin to understand what it means. Like she's throwing stones at him at the, like that's the first time I see her. And that has been called out as a direct allusion to let him without sin cast the first stone. And then there are seven deaths in the films. There are 12 possessions in the film. Simply, you know, so there's all these, like there's different things that I know mean something. So the, I don't mean this to be a stupid question, but did you intuit those things or like you read you in sort of researching in, in stuff? sort of researching it, come across it. No. So there's a few things that I would have intuited. Most of this, I began to gleam from just other analyses of the, of the film and from other interviews and stuff like that. Um, but as in terms of the blood pool, once you visualize that she is at least an angelic figure, if not directly a Christ figure, then right. then the spilling of blood for a sense of atonement takes on a direct connotation where it's like, sure. okay, well then that's, that's part of what we're dealing with here. Sort of the, the, uh, you know, the emptying of herself in an effort to, ensnare the evil and and free and deliver them from how it has ensnared them and i I do feel like that is that's that's kind of a a crucial element to what the director is is after um can i read you a couple of a couple of quotes from from him so this is again comes from this playlist interview which is is relatively brief and everybody should check it out um uh, the the interviewer asks him and I'm not going to read everything that he says but the interviewer asks him about the origins of the film and he talks about I'm going to contextualize and paraphrase a paragraph he talks about how he had experienced the death of several close acquaintances and this is now where I get into a quote he said the questions raised during those days coincided with the things I've always been wondering while making my previous films the question was why did they have to be victims of all people I already had the answers for the how. What I wanted to find out was the why. So I began to meet and talk to the clergy of various religions, which was the starting point of this film. And so then th- there's there's a few other, I, I'm not going to summarize this entire interview because I just want you know people to seek it out and everything. Um, but then he gets asked point blank about you know, some of the religious elements in the film. And they said, you know, can you discuss what pulled you towards this? Are you a religious person yourself? And this is his quote. He says, and I'm, I'm reading this from the playlist interview. He says, I chose religion because I believed that no areas of study or school of philosophy could answer the question I mentioned earlier. He says, I'm a Christian. And if I didn't believe in the God from the Bible to begin with, I would have told this story in an entirely different way. Perhaps I could have answered the question with scientific reasoning. He says, I'm not a very devout practitioner like the rest of my family participating in missionary works and such, but I sometimes find myself agreeing to the concepts and comments that deny the existence of God. So when making important decisions, I seek counseling from Buddhist monks at temples in the mountains and pray there as well. So it all gets into how religion can kind of, uh, like, again, he's interested in the why and not so much just 
the how. You know, the, the how can be pretty explicit, but why is this happening? And so when you understand that intention and then you encounter that scene with the woman in white and that's what our, our main character can't get around. My timing and my why and why is why is all of this why is all of this happening? There's a moment earlier and I should have written it down, but there's a moment earlier where they're talking about uh, oh no, I think it's the shaman actually where you're saying where he says he's a fisherman. He's just fishing. Like he's just seeing what he can get. Yeah. And and yeah. I love that visual and that is the first visual we have of the stranger on the beach or on the shore, but I love that idea of like you don't have a vendetta against the fish. You're just casting right, the bait out right, right, to see right. what you hook. But once a fish, in, in the fisherman analogy, once a fish has taken the bait, well, then you reel them in. Well, then you hook right. them and you reel them in. So it's not as if there's anything. And, and, and this is profound to me, thinking about these notions of we want to see some profound meaning behind tragedy. And we want to see something, you know, rich and important behind, oh, these are the things that cause this tragedy, this devastation, everything. When I think some of the philosophy behind the film or some of the exploration behind the film is simply, well, no, sometimes it's just you nibbled on the line and you got hooked in to this thing that was bigger right, and beyond. Right. Um, again, believing in malevolent forces and in the benevolent ones that are seeking to set you free from those things. But it is, in the fishing analogy, it is very difficult to get unhooked from a hook by yourself. You need some measure of intervention to unhook you from the hook. And, uh, and, and so those, those thoughts are, are really powerful to me when I think about them in the context of this. I think the film's very interested in where do, like, the, the kind of blurred lines between what looks trustworthy and what looks innocent, and what truly is and isn't, what looks benevolent and what doesn't. One of the things that we, I don't want to get too heady, but we've been talking a while, and I want to, I want to kind of steer toward home, and even if we don't land, part of the, the, the source behind doing this series is this notion of the ways in which we can navigate the world around us, and there's all kinds of conversation about otherness and the need for diversity in the, in the body, diversity of experience, all these kind of things, ways in which we can treat the other as deficient or, uh, or or lesser than than us. And I feel like one of the things this film seems to be very interested in is there's a line very early in the film where the grand it's like it's a comical line um, where the the grandmother says after he after the police officer says somebody's been killed, and she says, "Whatever kills people?" Like, you know, like, it's just an observation, but she's like, whatever mm, kills people, yeah, you know? Yeah. And I feel like there is this through line through the film of like, like, what, wh- why does this happen? Like, wh- what's up with this? Why does this happen? And what is devastating about the film is the ways in which the police officer tries to maintain control and tries to maintain security. He has decisively determined this is the threat and what's really chilling about it is, as we've explored elsewhere on this podcast, he's correct, but does not realize the ramifications of what he's trying to do. In the same way that, like we talked about with Ten Cloverfield Lane way back in the day, like he's right about the problem, but totally incorrect 
and is making things worse for himself in the ways he's choosing to address the problem. And I feel so compelled by this notion of getting back to some old conversations about you may be correct in identifying like the problem at hand or in identifying you know what the source of the of the wailing is but that doesn't mean you're automatically going to know how to deal with it and that doesn't mean you're going to automatically be correct in your solution to the problem and uh I'm I'm just very compelled by the final lines of the film where he's whispering heartbreakingly so you remember daddy is a policeman i'll take care of everything you know like yeah. th- this man's belief in his fundamental ability to control the situation is most of his own undoing and uh, and that's that's heartbreaking and very sobering to ponder in larger contexts um i have more thoughts but i've, I've been talking a while <laughs> yep well it's funny because i feel like i'm also not only am I trying to absorb and sort of marinate in your thematic ideas and the ones and marry them somehow to what I'm sort of thinking about those on on that track, but I'm also comprehending the narrative as well. Like like in new ways. In other words, it makes more sense to me now because I got, I got confused. I was like, okay, so Hujin in the hospital is clean. She's Mm, mm. like, she's, she's released, but then she's not. And so, it does if you if you contextualize the narrative correctly, which, which in other words, if you understand it, like I'm continuing continuing to grow into. But all of the calamity, including Hujin's initial onset of of problem, is just the fishing. It's yeah. just yeah. the blind catching of you know whatever. However, yeah. you want to describe that. Like there's there's no there's no specificity intended. Right. It just right. is the death hex presumably or the intervention of the white woman specifically does liberate Hujin. But correct me if I'm wrong, sequentially, the dad after the death hex is when they go out to his house that results in him flipping him off off the bridge, thus making himself a marked intended. This is what I... Right? Like that's... I wanted you you to get your thought out, but here here's the gut punch of the film that moment you keep referencing where she's released no my friend that is when she is ensnared all that was prior to that but, and this is the confusion that 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 Jong-Yu has i feel bad that i'm butchering his name again but that's the confusion our our police officer has is he's pressing the woman in white he says she was sick before she was sick before that and he's mm-hmm. confused by that but in in there in her conversation to him and in what it, when you think about the fact that the shaman says at that moment the rat has fallen into the trap that relief is because they've got her now they, in in the same way that it's like well now I now I'm just captive to this thing like there's no more struggle anymore you're just you're just captive you're caught at that moment so what looks like relief to them is the moment when the woman in white has contextualized your your their, your daughter's possessed, like there's a spirit in her, and that's hmm. what she said. It's that moment, and that's the thing. It's 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 complex. I'm not pretending it's simple, but in that same way, we talk about sometimes in Christianese terms about how when you're doing the devil's work, he leaves you alone. Where sometimes if you're if you're basically 
if you're on this sort of destructive path, he doesn't have to make you feel terribly oppressed or or right, set right. against because because whatever you're you're not fighting him anymore again this is very christianese language but sure. in that same in that same way she's ensnared at that point because that's when in the shaman's words the rat has fallen into the trap so that's when the hooks are really in this family that's when without the intervention by the woman in white which we know ultimately fails without that intervention they are going to die it's what she warned him about in the house when she first saw him. But this is the moment where prior to that, there is influence and oppression and an attempt to get into her. Recontextualize the shaman death hex. He stops it. The dad stops it. So she, right. so she's obviously going through some stuff and she's, she's being oppressed and she's being sort of like manipulated and, and she's going through some things she doesn't understand and everything. But that death hex was intended to ensnare her permanently the shaman right. even even sort of hedged his bets because he said you know like don't do anything or else it'll backfire this is a tricky thing sure, sure, back. sure. So he was already setting the stage that things were going to go wrong so but then the man stops it and when when the police officer stops it he essentially does not allow them to complete this thing and it is not until he continues to take matters into his own hands that he finally sort of stumbles into their trap it's it, it's trippy it's really trippy, but it's a lot. Well, let me direction. ask you because, and maybe you know, maybe this is the final leg of our journey here, or the the start of it at least. Like, what to you? I, I mean, I think it's a great film, and this question is in no means uh, uh, setting that quality aside. But I am curious, as you envisioned speaking in tongues, like what prompted this to be your initial go? So. There's a it's a final quote from this playlist interview. So the interviewer asks him, he said, and then I'll I'll answer your question more directly from my thoughts. The interviewer asked him, he says, um, this interview is mainly going to be read by American readers, some of whom may not be familiar with your work. Is there any kind of message you'd like to give them as a way to prepare for the unique ride they're going to get in the whaling? And this is what the director said. I have no idea what kind of person you are to watch my film. Nevertheless, I tried to make a film for you. Whatever ideas come to you while you watch the film, they're yours. I want this film to be your own. On the other hand, there is one thing I wish everyone who watches this film to feel, regardless of who they are. A condolence for those who disappeared after having fallen as victims of the world and for those who are left behind. I sincerely wish this film gives you some time for those condolences. So it is something, again, we're, we're talking about the fisherman idea, the the hook of things. We think about what's happening in nations all over the world. We hear about atrocities that are taking place, conflicts that are uh, really coming down from people in power, and the the heartbreaking element of it. You, th- you think about not that long ago from like the Syrian refugees, and and there were some of those heartbreaking images of people who tried to make it here and and died in doing so and when i think about i mean the film's called the wailing and sure and uh, the the cry if you will and i think that that's something that there is a there is a time for mourning that i think this film can prompt some reflection on in the in the ways in which i i, I do love i say love somewhat trepidatiously, but I do love that it have a, has a devastating ending 
because I feel like if everything was just sort of neat and tidy, the film would lose 80% of its power. Because I feel like with it having this devastating ending, you do leave with a feeling of like, oh my God, these poor people are just caught. They're, they right. just, they just caught in a situation that was beyond them, that they didn't understand, that they didn't have the discernment and the understanding to even navigate who was on their side and who wasn't, and to understand when to act and when to wait. And they didn't understand when to move and when to stay, and they didn't understand when to speak and when to be silent. They didn't understand any of that. The priest comes down into the cave to confront this thing. He has no context or understanding for what he's just stepped into. And then by confronting this thing, it is ultimately lost to it, we would imagine. We don't know what ultimately happens to him, but I think it's a pretty safe bet. He's gone. So, um, so th- you know, it's those kinds of things that make us pause for a minute, I think. And in all of these conversations, you know, we were talking about specifically like things at the border, but I think in broader contexts of when we look at the atrocities that are happening in the world around us and in our nation and in other nations uh, beyond our front door and beyond our back porch, when we think about all of these different things, it can be really easy to assign, as the characters in this film do, weight behind, you're the good guy, you're the bad guy, this is what we need to do to solve the problem. And part of why I thought this film would be a compelling way to open this conversation is ultimately we should we should pay some respect to the fact that some things are simply beyond us and there are there are victims to the world as the director had put it that deserve our condolences our thoughts our moment of silence our our seeking to understand something that is beyond our personal experience and we too rarely seize the opportunity to take those meditations and we too rarely seize the opportunity to to have those condolences and so that's that's the kind of conversation i wanted to you know to have i know we're a bit running aground well, of time but no i mean whatever it's 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 our show it's my sleep but it's our show <laughs> um i know you're not saying this but there is a way that that at least the final few sentences felt there's wailing on behalf mm. of those lost to the world right right and then there's resignation to the fact that there will be those lost to the world. Mm. Yeah. And I know you're not saying B. No, no. But I think all. that's what it's kind of. Hmm. But I think. Because it's interesting. Um, what? what oh, no, I was just going to say, like, I, I think the I think grieving what has been lost is in some measure, at least appropriate to some of the mm. tragedies that we've that we've experienced. And I don't think yes. you I mean you and I are very passionate about our belief in the ultimate reconciliatory power of God, specifically of the Christ. But I do I do think it is appropriate to weep. I do think it is appropriate sure, to sure. to yeah, yeah, to yeah. grieve those as the director had put it lost as victims to the world. Like this they they didn't ask for this. They didn't deserve this. Right. They didn't get thrust in. They they got thrust into a situation that was beyond them, and 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 so many people trying to assign. Well, I blame this. I blame that. I blame this, and uh, and and in reality, our measures and efforts of control and our measures and efforts to try to manipulate the situation 
in many ways only deepen the hook's hold on mm. us and mm-hmm. and uh and that is part of what of the myriad of things that I come away thinking about and meditating on in this film the the grieving of the woman in white when he leaves her mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. and and the allusion of course to the rooster crowing three times you know like the 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 notion that when the rooster crows three times it's done it's over it's happened there's no not happening it again and that will either be from that moment on will either be a path into further devastation or will be a path into hope out of it depending on the choices you make in it and the the complexity of knowing again who is and is not on your side and recognizing the complications there is something that i find very powerful and provocative and and mourning for the people who made a wrong decision uh, i shouldn't say wrong decision but just sure. ch- chose yeah. something that ultimately it did not go very well for them. Well, and it's interesting because my initial takeaway before hearing all of that, which is valuable and, and enriching and, and is a very specific lens upon this particular film, my kind of half-formed takeaway and and kind of what I... Because I really did watch the movie like thinking like, okay, read one of this one to be first, so let me figure out if I can you know, what's going on. figure yeah. this out. And I think a takeaway for me was the terror mm. inherent in that final scene when he is, when Jong-Gu is just torn asunder, like rhetorically between the shaman on the phone, the woman in white. And then, and while technically the stranger isn't speaking to him. Yeah. All those, all those characters' voices are in concert to us, the viewer. Yeah, yeah, right. And, and sort of what I was wrestling through in that moment, and this is why I rewatched that scene, is the way. This is going to seem like an odd sort of inclusion here, but I'm going to try to build it back up to where we're at. I think a great disservice has been done to us historically from ourselves, perhaps. I've come a long way from what I feel like, I'll phrase it this way, I've come a long way from what I feel like was an earlier model of personal faith that counted myself as low and little and without, not without value, but that the value I had was only, was not inherent and given. Yeah, yeah. And so what I think can happen when you adopt a posture, it's sort of like Little Shop of Horrors conversation, um, little reference there. Mm-hmm. Um, when you adopt a posture of not because lowliness, meekness on a certain context, these are appropriate things, but depraved, unworthy, not valuable in your voice are, I don't think, appropriate things. Mm. And so what can happen if you adopt a posture of I'll use a specifically connotative religious phrase, total depravity. Thus, I have nothing to offer. Thus, I don't trust my own viewpoint and value. And it, and thus my viewpoint and value is determined by external things. So what, right, you, en- what right. you end up with is John Gu at the end, utterly bewildered and utterly uncertain yeah, yeah, what yeah. path to choose mm-hmm. because he has these voices screaming at him. And so that initially was my takeaway. I was like, okay, we are in a society and a culture in a world right now that has directly conflicting notions pounding us. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, oh, we're, yeah. we're kind of stuck between 
well, this is what this thing is saying. This is what this thing is saying. As a slight note to where I said I started to uh, a minute ago saying I used to feel this way. I, I, I do feel much more strongly in the notion of uh, trust of oneself. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Understand mm-hmm. the understand the nuance with which I'm saying that like trust of oneself, I think, is a, a, a actually pretty healthy way to operate. And it's interesting if you if you contextualize those final scenes. So trust of oneself. Okay, what does that mean in Jangu's case? Most of the shaman and he um Jangu doesn't have a ton of verbal back and forth with the stranger. So right, right. it's a little it's a little dismissive. But what does the shaman continue to say? Don't trust her. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What does she say? I'm here to protect you. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. there's such a different flavor to that and as we Mm -hmm. as we like as we go through the world and are trying to recognize where the hooks are in people Mm -hmm. and there are voices that are feeding directly into our pockets into our brains into our comings and goings to say don't trust that Mm -hmm. yeah and then there's the voice that says you are safe and you are protected. Do this thing to protect yourself, to protect others. I don't mean that in a self-preservation kind of selfish way. I yeah, mean that in a understand. Com- comfort like a mother hen kind of way. Yeah. And and that to me is a powerful takeaway too, you know, in, in, in how we engage and how we view others. Don't trust them. Don't trust that. Right, like, right. A- anyway, I, I don't know. I don't have a, a, a hard button to put on that, but. Yeah, kind of mingling some of those things together. Well, and it's and, and we should be not only for the time's sake, but we should, but for the for the film's sake, we should be very prepared that there are no, as with many of these films we're covering, there are no easy answers to this one. Like this, sure. this is a film about the ways in which evil and good can be wrought from simple decisions and and from simple consequences of uh, of things that we do and don't have control over. I want to, uh, as a as a probable final button, I want to uh, mm-hmm. j- just sort of uh, pull on this this thread for a second of of when you said you know the difference in the ways the two of them engaged the conversation. The shaman very desperately saying, "Don't listen to her, don't trust her, none of that," and then her when he asked point blank, "Who are you? I'm someone trying to save your daughter," you know, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and there is you know and and. She does compel him. Now, you know, we could get into all the the ups and downs. Christ used language very much saying, like, don't be like the Pharisees and everything. Like, when you start when you start straining at those gnats, it's just, it's just not terribly fruitful. I think that the the best through line we have for navigating some of these situations is in recognizing, I need help. We need help. I feel like this is a climate right now where everybody has a ton of answers. You need to do what I'm telling you to do. Mm-hmm. You need to listen to what I'm saying. I understand. Nobody else gets it. Nobody else understands. Yep. Don't believe them. Don't believe that. And I think if we were to humble ourselves, oh, it's an often used scripture and I resist using it so much because of how often it is used, but the scriptures do say, <laughs> if my people who are called by my name will, what? Will humble themselves and pray and seek my, I you, love know, it. Uh, you know? That was like, that was like rapping lackey. Yeah. Well, if they will, what? If they humble will, themselves. What? What? But call out. It says, 
if they'll humble themselves and pray and seek my face, then will I hear from heaven. We are, we are living in a climate right now where everybody wants to say, listen to the answers I have because by God I have them. Instead of saying, we need help, we will only be able to do this together, and we mm-hmm. need to begin listening to one another, and we need to begin walking hand in hand and, and learning when to wait and learning when to listen and learning when to be silent, and we, we, we need help. And for, for this, the film evokes in me a tremendous amount of like, yeah, I, uh, the fish on the line cannot get free by itself. It can. Yeah. And, and, and we need each other, and we need to humble ourselves in the midst of that and recognizing not championing and heralding the next person who will have the answer. And you can assign whatever political or religious sentiment you want to to that statement. Stop chasing. I'll quote the the late, great Rich Mullins here, like, educational systems are not going to do it. So stop trusting in educational systems. Religious systems are not going to do it. Stop trusting those. Political systems are not going to do it. Stop trusting those. If you want to see the difference, it comes when you are willing to lay down your life and and surrender to something beyond yourself. And... Mm. Only then, only together, will we come to that place where maybe the wailing will stop. And maybe, mm-hmm. maybe, we will see an end to the tears. Um, and so, I know it's a heavy film. I know. But, uh, but a powerful one, and a powerful one to provoke thought and reflection in what's taking place in the world around us and how we navigate it. Uh, yeah, speaking in tongues... Nathan Rouse. There you there go. It is. Part one. There it is. This is gonna be a. Uh, this is gonna be a bumpy ride. It's gonna be a bit of a bumpy I'm ride. Yes. Um, <laughs> so uh, it, it, we just we just lost a segment of listeners for like the next three months. I, be, I believe know. so. I believe so. But they'll check in in October. That's okay. That's all right. That's all right. Um, so, but very quickly because I know we're over time. Uh, let's let's send this to the fog meter. Our fear measurement. Our God measurement. Um, mm-hmm. Nathan, what would you put this on the fear measurement on a scale of one to ten? Um, scale one to ten, I'm gonna go. I think I'm actually gonna do six. I think I okay. was I was initially gonna hedge a little bit, but that final reveal is pretty powerful. Yes. Oh, absolutely. The final reveal, on top of some of the other horrific imagery and the devastation of the end, I landed an eight on the fear oh, wow. measure. Okay. Um, substance man, pulling no punches, dude. It's a ten. This provokes so much in me. The the god meter, I'm gonna give it a ten. I, th- I find it incredibly powerful. So. 10 for me um i am going to go seven and a half and that's simply because on a first viewing it's hard to sure know even what you're watching yeah um I, I understand that but yeah so that means we give the wailing part one of this brand new wild series <laughs> speaking in tongues an eight out of ten on the fog meter oh so that, I mean, that's, my gosh that's that's uh that's pretty respectable Respectable score there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so part one is in the books. Uh, we hope that you will join us for this uh, bumpy and and but we feel very important conversational ride with us over the next few weeks. At the moment, we have not quite landed on what the next installment will be, but stay tuned to social media, not only to find out what we're going to be covering next week, but where you can watch it. So be on the lookout. Additionally, that said, 
you can watch episodes three and four of season one of Dark. You can do that. Definitely much. do that. So check out episodes three and four of Netflix series Dark. Uh, we will inform you as quickly as we've decided what our next film in this series is going to be, and uh, we will see you guys then. Nathan, thank you, thank you so much for You're this welcome, conversation buddy. and for this series idea, and uh, and just yeah, it's I, I'm I'm very excited for what's going to be ahead of us. Thank you, brother. See you the next week, everybody. Bye, guys. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, but not the end of the conversation. And you can continue the conversation in a variety of ways. You can follow us on Twitter, at The Fear of God. You can like and follow us on Facebook, or join the Facebook Fear of God discussion group. You can follow us on Instagram, at Fear of God Podcast, or go to morethanonelesson.com to leave a comment on this post or any of the other official episode posts. Email us at fearofgodpodcast at gmail.com. Our theme music was composed by Lee Wright and Reed Lackey, and our podcast art was crafted by Jacob Hunt of jacobhuntcomics.com. Merchandise for the show can now be found at tpublic.com. Just search for The Fear of God Podcast, all one word. And last but not least, if you listen to us through iTunes, we would greatly appreciate a rating or a review. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week.